In all honesty, I was not sure what to say tonight. And so I've divided it into two parts and take a little more time than usual to kind of look back over my 47 years. The first part, I would like to just take a look at some of the fun things that happened in all the different congregations that I served. I think you'll enjoy the view with me. Only a couple of weeks after I was ordained, I went to Memphis, Tennessee to serve as the assistant rabbi at Temple Israel. And one of my very first duties was to go to the hospital and to see people there. And I did. As I said, two weeks later, I'm in the receiving line after Shabbat services, as is the practice at Temple Shalom or uh, Temple Israel, as it was all those 47 years ago. The rabbis would line up before, in front of the pulpit, and people who wanted to wish them Shabbat would come forward, and we would do so. As one lady come, came forward, she said to me, Rabbi, do you remember me? And I didn't know anybody in the congregation, much less her. She said, but you visited me. I said, no, not, not really. She said, but you visited me in the hospital last week. And I didn't know what to say. So I said what came to mind. I just didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> her husband loved that one. And then there was Jackson, Mississippi. I, I share one image with you uh, that Donna and I saw the minute we got off the plane and were driving to the synagogue. And this will say everything about my Mississippi experience. As we're driving along, we see a sign and it says, no shooting from the highway. and it was riddled with bullet holes. <laughs> and then there was Shari Tzedek and Tampa. I must tell you that I was very happy that a archeologist is not going through my things. As you know, I'm leaving one office and going to a different new office, which required my taking all of my stuff out of the old office into the new one. And as I was going through the closet, what did I find? A dress, high-heeled shoes, <laughs> makeup, a wig, stockings, and high heels. Can you imagine what anybody who didn't know how I would spend the telling of my stories in the early years can you imagine what they think went on here? <laughs> and apropos of that, some of you who've known me from my very earliest days, remember that Bert and Ernie, the puppets, were very, very popular back then. And so I loved to bring my puppets in. And when it was a family service, I will simply get out my puppets and they would have Bert and Ernie a discussion is this what you should do for Shabbat? What are the Shabbat lights for? Do you drink the candles? And the kids would have a ball. Well, about three or four years ago, 
I was invited to do the wedding of a couple. Uh, both the bride and the groom grew up here and were students of mine, which was really great. And they mentioned to me that one of the things they loved were the puppet shows. And so, oh yeah. <laughs> Never wanted to miss an opportunity without telling them it was the wedding night and it was the, the ceremony. And as I stood there in my suit and tali and yarmulke, ready to lead the service, I had to tell them that I would not be doing it because Bert and Ernie did it. <laughs> Up they came on each hand and they did the vows, they did the blessings, they did the ring exchange. And as I understand it to this day, they're still talking about not the wedding or the couple, but Bert and Ernie. So I've had a wonderful time. I have a little boy in me that will never grow up. And you all have been wonderful sports. We've often had visitors come, and it's a bar bat mitzvah night for them, and the family comes from out of town, and they cannot believe what we do in this congregation. You all have made it such a joy for me. At the same time, and now into the more formal part of my sermon tonight and hopefully my lesson, I want to tell you that I've had some difficult times through as a rabbi in my 47 years. And I'm going to talk about three of them, three very difficult decisions and situations that I've had to deal, deal with along the way. And there's a common theme to all of them. And that theme is what I will talk about tonight because I think it speaks to all of our lives, whether we're rabbis or not. And so I begin. Most of us are not very good at predicting things. A few examples from the past prove this to be true. For example, Marshal Ferdinand Falk of the French Army predicted in 1911 that airplanes are interesting toys, but they have no military value. <laughs> Business Week magazine in 1958 predicted that with over 50 foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese audio auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big slice of the US market. <laughs> on October 16, 1929, Economist Irving Fisher announced that stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. <laughs> and this is the best of all. Frank Knox, U.S. Secretary of the Navy said, on December 4, 1941, whatever happens, the U.S. Navy is not going to be caught napping. <laughs> Needless to say, if I were facing a life-threatening illness, I would not consult any of these sources if I wanted to know how long I had to live. They couldn't get it right, and neither can we. You see, predicting the future poses many dangers, not the least of which is the tendency to bias our predictions with preconceived notions. I learned this the hard way when congregants made a prediction about me 
shortly after being ordained, and therein lies part of the lesson. In one of my early sermons at my first congregation in Memphis in 1971, I announced that, it, I, that I did not think that employing busing to ensure racial integration would work. The notes and calls I received following that sermon were devastating. One said, you have no right to call yourself a rabbi. Another said, how can you, a rabbi, take such a position? A third said, the poorest, you are the poorest excuse for a rabbi I have ever heard. And a fourth wrote, you will never make it as a rabbi. You can only imagine what that did to me, having been ordained only a few months before. Putting aside the merits of the busing issue for a moment, along with my lack of sensitivity for taking such a stance in a congregation where my senior rabbi was a heralded champion of civil rights, I felt that the attack made on me was terribly unfair. My congregants could disagree with my position, but I did not think their hurtful personal attacks on me as a rabbi were warranted. In hindsight, who knows if busing has been successful in attaining the stated goals, but it doesn't matter, and it didn't matter then either. Because what I failed to realize back then is that in that moment in our nation's history and given the racial inequality in our public schools, busing was simply the right thing to do, period. My belief that you cannot legislate human relationships was irrelevant in that time and place. How nice it would have been if my detractors had simply made this point instead of attacking my calling as a rabbi. I believe my error in giving that sermon was egregious, but so was theirs. We both suffered from the same blindness, you see. Neither of us could see beyond our preconceived notions. I came from a German refugee family that didn't like the idea of the government artificially moving people wherever the government thought they should go. And my congregants came from a reform religious culture that equated civil rights with the essence of being Jewish. My comments, therefore, literally attacked my congregants' Jewishness at its very core. With time, my congregants warmed up to me, and as we used to say in Memphis, I cottoned up to them. <laughs> I learned to see the world through their eyes, and they at least began to respect me as a rabbi, even if they did not always agree. Things worked out in Memphis, and I learned a lot. I mention this tonight because that experience points to what I consider the most important lesson I've learned over my 47 years as a rabbi. A lesson that I might add that touches every aspect of our lives. That lesson is this. Strive to see people and situations as they are, not the way you think they should be or you would like them to be. 
When parents push their children to be what the children are not, both sides suffer. When parents push their children to fulfill the unfulfilled dreams of their own childhoods, both sides suffer. When spouses strive to remake each other in their own images, the relationship fails. When brides or grooms or any combination thereof come to the marriage altar with expectations that cannot be altered, marriages fail. And the same happens with friendships, work-related interactions, business dealings, and the rough and tumble of the political world. Just imagine what would happen if for one day the Democrats would stop being Democrats and the Republicans stop being Republicans and they would all simply become Americans with no preconceived idea of what the party politics should be and just sat down and said, how can we solve this problem? If they could do it to get to the moon, they should be able to do it to get simple solutions. My congregants in Memphis had their image of what they thought I should be as a rabbi. And the sad part is that in turn, I then tried to remake myself in that image. And I failed miserably. I tried to figure out how to make myself an activist. But the experiment failed because it was not who I was. A few years later in Jackson, Mississippi, something good came of that. I wanted to fight for civil rights, but my congregants were fearful. They were a Jewish island in the midst of a white Baptist sea. That meant that they weren't exactly white and they certainly weren't Christian. They were a minority any way you caught you would cut it and many were merchants who counted on the white trade. The last thing they needed was a pot-stirring rabbi, and the last thing I could do just because of who I am was be a gadfly. But segregation was wrong. So what was I to do? I decided, learning what I did for Memphis, to continue being myself. I got together with other religious leaders and quietly, behind closed doors, did what I could do to bring the warring sides together. And you know what? It worked. Was my approach the only effective approach? No. Our group would not have achieved as much as we did had the activists not done their part. The situation called for both approaches and also at the same time allowed me to be myself. Members of my Jackson congregation, some of them wanted me to speak out more, but soon they too understood. They saw my role through my eyes instead of theirs. They were willing to challenge their own assumptions of what they thought a rabbi should be and do. And because of that, we all won. One of my favorite plays is Our Town by Thornton Wilder. In it, a young woman dies young and then is allowed one day to return to her town of Grover's Corners for just one day to see what has happened since she died. She can see and hear the people, including her family, 
but they cannot see or hear her. In one particular dialogue, she says the following, Mama, Mama, I'm here. I'm grown up. I love you all, everything. I can't look at everything hard enough. And then she pauses, talking to her mother who doesn't hear her. She speaks with mounting urgency. Oh, Mama, just look at me. Look at me one minute as though you really saw me. And then she concludes with these words. We just don't see. We're all blind. What a wonderful world this would be if we could put predilections aside and just see one another and ourselves exactly as we are. When we, know, when we don't, we miss the gifts that God gave us individually and we act out while trying to become who and what we are not. I was reminded of this a second time when I came here to Tampa. I had to decide if I would officiate in intermarriages between Jews and non-Jews. I wanted Judaism to survive as much as the next rabbi, but I could also see that Jews were marrying non-Jews in growing numbers regardless of what rabbis thought. I also noticed that non-Jewish spouses were building Jewish homes and raising Jewish children. And for these reasons, I believe that performing intermarriage was worth the risk. On the other hand, I also knew that many of my Tampa congregants were opposed to intermarriage and didn't want their rabbi to have any part of it. The question then became, how do I remain true to my views while serving the needs of some of my congregants? Fortunately, the Shari Tzedek leadership was willing to put their preconceived notions aside and understand the world as it really was. And intermarried couples who wanted to get married at the temple and felt that they had a right to do so here were willing to put their preconceived expectations aside and view the world as it really was. Out of that openness of understanding, a compromise was born. I would do perform intermarriages, but not at the temple. That compromise has stood the test of 31 years, a testament to what can happen when we choose to look closer at the way things really are. Today, I see much that troubles me. I see people desperately trying to be who they are not, or other people who try to be what other people want them to be. I see people trying to fit certain images of who they think they should be or who they think others should be. I see them going through all kinds of transformations, physically, emotionally, to try to fit these artificial images. Too few people today seem to be happy with who they are. The race to keep up, the compulsion to outdo the other, the obsession with having the most successful children and grandchildren, or the need to simply have the most 
and the need to move up the social ladder is literally killing us. I see it every day in my study. It's beginning to show itself as early as the preschool years, and it's leading to literal physical fights in assisted living communities. Being the alpha male or the queen bee has become the be-all and the end-all of our existence. I say to you tonight, we cannot continue going on this way. Yes, each of us has been made in God's image, but God also created us in our own image. Every human being has something special to offer. If only we could learn to appreciate that specialness in ourselves and in others, what a beautiful world it would be. Jealousy would disappear. Comparisons would fade. Gossip would be unnecessary. And all of our stupid, petty fights would no longer have reason to even begin. This is the reason that I believe the lesson of seeing the world and seeing people as they really are instead of the way we think it should be, is so important. This lesson to me is the secret sauce in the recipe for a more peaceful, less stressful, much happier world. I close then with what I consider to be the most important story of all of them in the Jewish tradition. It's told in many different variations but the one that I like is this. One day a beloved rabbi and learned man named Zusia came before his Hasidim in tears. Why are you crying, they asked him. He answered that one day when he went to heaven, God would ask him why he wasn't more like the great Moses. But they allayed his fears. They corrected his preconception by telling him God wouldn't ask him why he wasn't more like Moses, but rather why he wasn't more like Zeusia. Why hadn't he been more like his own best self, not like someone else? I have tried to be the best rabbi I could be. I have erred, I've faltered, and I've been wrong. But at all times, for better or worse, I've tried to be myself. And with your help and the help of the thousands of congregants I've served over the years, I think that it has worked out pretty well. So, thank you for, this is where I cry. Thank you for letting me serve as your senior rabbi for all these years and to continue to be your rabbi, and more importantly, friend, for many years to come. Just don't try to predict what they will be like. Just see them for what they are, and let God take care of the rest. Amen.
Thank you all so much. And I look forward to the unpredictable future.